0: Everyone welcome back to Dog Backwards. And wouldn't you know it, I've been talking for 20 minutes and I realized I forgot to hit the record button. So isn't that fun? Well, hopefully maybe the second time around my thoughts might be a little bit more concise. Today I'm flying solo, no interview. I have a few on the back burner that need to be edited for sound quality. And if you're wondering why I don't put out a podcast every week or every 2 weeks, well, there's good reasons for that. Um, I have a full-time job. I have three kids, all under the age of five, and I believe quantity is less important than quality, so I will put one out when I feel like I have something to say or I have a conversation that I feel like uh, is really valuable, but I just don't want to. It's really easy to start a podcast and be like, oh, I I owe them one every week. Like, if I don't have one, none of you are struggling all day because there's no dog backwards podcast but our listener um, group has increased I think last month we had over 900 downloads and so thank you thank you for sharing thank you for uh, listening continue to share you know hey share this on your Facebook share this when you talk to friends about uh, podcasts that you enjoy and uh, for each time you share I will give you ten dollars uh, not really but you know um, it's worth it's worth believing it that helps you so today there's a couple of topics that I want to cover and hopefully this will be an educated rant and just not a rant but there's some stuff that I've experienced in the last few weeks that I think are worth addressing. One is just the the lack of apologetics in church and if you're if you're not in a church that teaches apologetics then I really encourage you to go and sit down with your pastor and say, "Hey, can we increase the amounts that we talk about how to defend our faith?" And if you want to know why we should do that, because Scripture commands it. So if you're in a Bible-based church, there should be some aspect where they are teaching you how to defend your faith. Scripture says that we should always be ready to give a hope for the have, uh, give a reason for the hope that we have in God. So this is where we get the Greek word apologia. Um, To defend And from that we get apologetics So it's how to defend your faith This is not just for scholars This is for every single person Because for example I got my hair cut the other day And apologetics came in um, To the rescue It's very helpful in regular conversations About faith and it helps you spot False truth from a mile away So I was getting my hair cut I go to Great Clips Because it's cheap and Uh, It's always a surprise the haircut you're going to walk out with. So you go in, you tell them when you want the same thing you got last time, and it's going to be different because it's, I don't know. So um, I really wish uh, it it could be the same person that cuts your hair every time, but if you want to get it done cheap, it's like a roll of the dice, but, you know, roll away. So the person cutting my hair uh, was asking what I do for a living, and I have ways to escape this question. I'm not ashamed of what I do, but I would rather continue the conversation. And sometimes telling people that I am a pastor is a great way to shut down the conversation because they just, I don't know if they're intimidated. They feel like I'm about to hit them with a thousand Bible verses. They don't go to church and they don't like Christians. I don't know. There's, there are a myriad of reasons that people, when I tell them what I do, just kind of space out. But sometimes you tell somebody what you do and you get to have a good conversation. So I rolled the dice. I told them that I was a pastor and they said, oh, yeah, I'm not religious, but I'm very spiritual. And that statement right there, I try not to let it show on my face, but it's one of the sayings that I dislike the most. Dare I say, I hate it. I hate that phrase. And let me tell you why I hate that phrase. You might have heard it. I hate it because it means absolutely nothing. It is, when it comes to spiritual conversations, the easiest cop-out that you can have because it makes you sound so intellectual and advanced and, uh, oh, wow, he's so deep. He's not religious, but he's so spiritual. But what does it mean? Let's just think for a second. Let's break that down and see what does it mean to say that i'm not religious but i'm spiritual means that i believe there is some kind of spiritual thing but i can't define it so that means i say i believe in something i just don't know what it is i believe you see how little sense that makes let me let me just say it again and just pause it's to say i believe that there is something I just don't know what it is. How is that more brave, more open-minded, more secure, more thoughtful than to say, I believe and this is what I believe. Because if you can't define what you believe, it's not a belief. It's actually a lack of belief. It's saying like, what I believe is so um, unthought through that I can't even give it a basic structure. And when it comes to religion, when it comes to this stuff, there is a point where ambiguity is the enemy of education. Ambiguity in spirituality is the enemy of true knowledge. So just to say, I think there's something, but I can't say what it is, is a cop-out to rigorous thinking about spiritual things because the realm of spiritual thought is so big and so wide. If you just cast your net that large, you're not being open-minded in a sense that is positive. You're being so open-minded that if you bend forward, everything will fall out of your brain. I want to be open-minded. And this is one of the things that the person cutting my hair said. It says, well, I just like to be open-minded as though the opposite of that is narrow-minded, which what I'm sure is what he thinks Christians are. Every religion makes a truth claim. What he said is a truth claim. He, he's making a statement that it's better to be so open-minded that you never define anything. And I say it's better to see if God has actually defined himself for us. And so he's making a truth claim, and it is a narrow-minded truth claim, and I am making a narrow-minded truth claim. Christians do not be afraid of being narrow-minded. All truth claims, like truth by definition rejects lies. So you could say, hey, uh, my belief in gravity is narrow-minded. My belief in the laws of physics are narrow-minded my belief that I need to eat food to survive is a narrow-minded belief because truth by definition separates itself from lies. So I am a narrow-minded Christian because I have taken hold of certain truths. And when it comes to those truths, I've closed, I've closed the book. I believe they are so self-evident and so true. And it's not as though I close them from the moment I thought about it, but I believe I've tested my faith so rigor, rigorously. Can we say that? It's awfully early. It's eight o'clock in the morning when I'm doing this, but I've, I believe I've tested my faith so much that I have closed my hand on the idea of, is there a God? Yes, there's a God. My hands are closed on that. I can't think of a single objection that would make me change my mind. When we have conversations about God, people often say, well, Is there anything that could make you believe that there is not a God or that Jesus is not God? Is there anything? Look, I want to be open-minded and say, there's a possibility. Maybe there's something that would make me change my mind because I always want to go where the evidence goes. But I've looked at every criticism of Christianity since the day it started And they're basically just five different criticisms on repeat. And we're essentially at the height of atheism in the academic world. And they still have no other option but to rehash the same old tiresome arguments over and over again. So for thousands of years, criticism laid laid against Christianity. I've looked at them. I've tested them. I've thought about them. And they all ring hollow and false. And the more that I test, the more firm my belief in Christianity is. So this person cutting my hair makes this very broad statement, which is meaningless. It's garbage. It means nothing. And they think that the statement that Jesus is God is somehow less Intellectual, less spiritual. Ravi Zacharias, who is a great apologist, if you don't know him, you should YouTube and just listen to him for days. Very few people speak as eloquently as he does. It is, He's one of the last people that understands that public speaking is an art form. There is a poetic sense to it. Uh, Rob Bell once said, it's time to put the poets back in the pulpit. Well, Ravi Zacharias is a, poet from the pulpit. And he speaks so incredibly well. And he's debated some of the top atheists in the world. But he has a saying, he says, um, everybody has a view on religion from Deepak Chopra to Oprah. And if you think about it, Oprah has her own religion, right? It's the cult of Oprah. She tells people what God is like, but she doesn't know. None of us know what God is like. We are relying upon God to tell us what he is like. So when somebody says, you know, I really think God is like this, it basically means nothing. They might as well just tell you their favorite color because it's opinion and it's not a fact. It is not a fact that blue is better than red. It is strictly an opinion. And so when someone says, I think God is like this, I always ask the question, how do you know? By what authority... Like in a nice way. So I'll be a little bit firmer because it's just a podcast. I'm trying to get the point across. I'm not, I'm not this harsh in public speaking one-on-one. But the question that should always try to get around to is by what authority do you know anything about God? People who claim to have special authority and know more than anybody else could possibly know because God somehow revealed it just to them. Those are the people that start cults. That's how cults get started. You look at Joseph Smith. I got special revelation and nobody else can know it but me. It goes against, Sure, it goes against all of scripture. It goes against all of church history. It goes against all the things we've ever known about God. But you have to believe me because I have special knowledge. You can't disprove their special knowledge. You can't disprove it. And so as long as somebody believes them, they have to believe that, oh my gosh, this person speaks for God. But all these people throughout history have claimed to know what God is like. And I don't care what you think you know. I want to know, has God spoken for himself? I don't trust people. And people say, I think God is like this. I had a conversation with somebody and they said, yeah, I love Jesus. And I was like, oh, great. Another brother in Christ. He's like, but I don't go to church anymore. I go, well, why not? Well, I just don't believe in hell. And I find that so interesting because how do you know about Jesus? Well, it's from scripture. How do you know about God and that God is real? Well, you read about it in scripture. How do you know what Jesus taught? You read it in scripture. How do you know about hell? Well, it's in Scripture. So essentially what we have is somebody who's just picked what they wanted. They've become God's editor of Scripture. They said, God, you made a few mistakes here. Let me fix this for you. I know better than you do. And this is what we all do with religion in one sense or another. And Christians, we should repent when we learn something that we thought was true about God that is simply not true. I grew up Southern Baptist, and I thought God hated dancing. (laughs) And I read that there are people who dance naked before the Lord, right? They're so happy. They're jumping around in loincloths that they worshiped all the time, and they did it through dance. There's churches that don't have music because they think God doesn't necessarily like music. He just wants to hear his saints' voices. But you read in Scripture pick up your harp, right? Play music for the Lord, play a new song. And so if you have a church tradition that goes against what God has said about himself, then it's the opinions of man and the opinions of man have no place in the pulpit. The pulpit is where we declare God's truth that has been revealed. So as Christians, it is narrow-minded to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. Truth by definition separates itself from all lies. The ambiguity of I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. That ambiguity is the enemy of education. I might have said that like five times now. But I think it's so powerful and it's so true. We should not be ambiguous or so open-minded that we think that is a good reason to reject the teachings of Jesus. It is a statement out of ignorance and it's intellectually lazy. Decide something. Decide something. Either decide you believe or you don't believe, but decide something. Look, because most people believe that there is some kind of spiritual aspect to life. The, The demons are spiritual. So to say, oh, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, could mean you're a demon worshiper, right? You could worship the devil and say that exact same statement. But because it's so big and open, it doesn't really matter. And this is why we need apologetics in the church it's highly likely this person had some time in the church. Then they go on to say, Do you know uh Jesus was a Gnostic? The early Christians were all Gnostics, and i I never heard something like this before. If you don't know what a Gnostic is, read the New Testament because the New Testament spends a lot of time destroying Gnosticism. It was one of the earliest Christian cults that began to form during the time of the first century church. And Gnosticism says that, yeah, all this Jesus stuff is great, but you need special knowledge to get saved. Like there's a special level you get to. It's like a monk who believes if they meditate, they'll reach nirvana and then you need to reach this special level and then you'll be saved. Then you'll have all this special information. Well, the Bible destroys Gnosticism. Jesus destroys Gnosticism. There is nowhere, anywhere in history that we can make the argument that Jesus was a Gnostic. Where does somebody get information like this? Somebody on YouTube makes it up because they want to just get around the Jesus question. And it it just, it's, I didn't even know how to respond. And they begin to tell me other ridiculous stuff. And literally, I'm not, I'm not joking. They began to talk about the ghosts they have seen. And then he said, you know, when you sleep, your spirit leaves your body. And if you wake up suddenly, you can see your soul come back into your body. This person is saying these things. And as somebody who takes spiritual conversations very seriously, because I think they're the most important conversations we can have, I was trying not to laugh or just go, what are you talking about? What are you what are you saying? you're literally either making this up or you're listening to somebody who's made this up and as i as I began to explain in a nice way, what you're saying is like there's no foundation for what you're saying. I can't like I've heard all the sceptical arguments, and I have never heard that Jesus was a gnostic. I said, "Where are you getting this information from? Oh, I listen to this podcast, and you need to listen to this person. They're very enlightened. Let me tell you, they're not enlightened they're not enlightened. they're a con artist, they're a good salesman. they're saying things that you want to hear because they're describing a religion that requires nothing from you but makes you feel like you have special knowledge it's what the, it's gnosticism oh i've got special i've got special knowledge, I know this stuff, and uh people who talk about. Our energy and our karma. Karma is not a biblical teaching. Karma does not exist. If you do good things, it does not mean good things will happen to you. Nobody did more good things to Jesus than they killed him, right? So this is uh, a false, another false belief. How do you know if a spiritual conversation is grounded in reality or not? There's only one way. Has God said this about himself? So if I say... There's only one God. How do I know that? How do I know any of that? Because that's what God has said about himself over and over and over again. Now you say, well, Caleb, doesn't that uh, presuppose the authority of Scripture? Yes. Yes, it does. I think we have valid reasons to believe that Scripture is true. And if we look at Scripture and we look at these claims, I think we can make a very strong argument, let alone prove that this is true we all have our presuppositions. This person's presupposition is that they can come to some kind of spiritual realization on their own, but you can't. We are dependent upon God to start the conversation. And so you need to ask yourself, do you believe that Scripture's true? I'll do a couple of weeks of apologetic stuff and we can talk about that. We can talk about how do we know that there is a God, but we all have our starting point And I think a terrible starting point is that I can know something about God without asking God. But this is where our world finds itself. So this, I'll say it again for the hundredth time, ambiguity is the enemy of education. And we see ambiguity. And if you don't know what ambiguity means, um, it it just simply means that um, it's so... I was going to say obtuse, but that's a, a, another big word. I didn't go to college, so I have to use college words. Um, it, it just means that things are unknown and no one could possibly know it. Uh, there was a comedy skit on Saturday Night Live when I was younger called The Ambiguously Gay Duo. And it was a, a, a whole skit about whether or not these people are gay. And you just didn't know. And so that's what ambiguity means. You just don't know. And so we can know. Certain truths about God. There are things that I think uh, are beyond a not only a reasonable uh, belief, there are reasonable beliefs, like I can believe with uh, without beyond a shadow of a doubt. I think they are so established that they um, are absolute truth. One that we know that there is a God, and I'll go into that in the next couple of weeks. We know that Jesus existed. That's a historical fact. There's, there's no honest, um, reasonable historian that would deny that fact. There was a brief time where atheists were trying to say, we don't even know if Jesus existed, but they have been laughed out of the circle because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was real. We know what Jesus claimed. We know, we know for certain that he was killed on a cross by Pontius Pilate. We know this stuff. This is just History. We know that he claimed to be God, and we know that his disciples, after his death, claimed to have seen him again. So we've established already a very strong, powerful, historical argument for who God is, and that gives credence to Scripture. So if you want to know who God is, you go to the Bible. And if you know the Bible to any sense or degree, you could easily hear these things that this person is saying and go, well, that's just not true. And whatever source you're getting that from, I'm guessing, they have no real foundation for why they believe what they believe. They're basically just making it up. And what they do is they grab different sources here and there and they stitch them together and they go, see, look, this is true. But if you are going to edit the spiritual realm and decide for yourself what it should look like, then you are playing God. This person goes on to um, just... Say a bunch of other ridiculous stuff and talk about how his mom had seen ghosts and how there was a woman in his room the other day that was a ghost. And uh, look, I'm you know, people think because we're preachers that we're um, not skeptical, but I'm highly, highly skeptical. I, I believe almost nothing people tell me until I can establish it for myself. Um, opinions are sometimes sought out, but most of the time people just give you their opinion. Um, and when it comes to religion, I don't really care what people's opinions are. I mean, I'm interested in people. I'm more than glad to hear them out, but we should always be asking the question, how do you, how do you know what you know? How do you know this? What is, what is your foundation for these beliefs? What is your source for this information? Because that's more important than what you're saying. I want to know, how do you know what you're saying is true? So the conversation ended Okay. But there was another aspect to this that I, I didn't cover in our conversation. This person was, I'm presuming, I'm going to jump to a conclusion, but I, I believe it is a, um, a warranted co- conclusion. I believe this man was gay. And so what? So what? He's gay. But it reminded me of why this ambiguity is so dangerous. Our culture lives in a we can't define anything anymore state right now. Intellectually, we're in a state of we can't define anything because to define anything is bigoted, hateful, mean. Um, they think it's the opp- opposite of knowledge. We can't define what a man is anymore. We can't define what a woman is anymore. And this man was very effeminate, and we can have a conversation later on about homosexuality and the biblical view and all that stuff. Um, I've written about that. You can uh, go to my blog. Uh, You can find it either through katusafirst.com or it is wordslingersok.com backslash Moore. I write for the uh, Southern Baptist Conventions online blog, and I've covered, I did a couple of weeks in a row about the biblical view of homosexuality. I, I think this is one of the most pressing issues that we face in our culture. And I'm not so much worried about telling people that they're wrong. I, I'm more concerned about helping people to think through certain things clearly. And one of those is the, um, it's essentially the murder of the feminized men in the church. There are Guys in church that are extremely effeminate and by effeminate I think I, I hate that word, but I think you know what I mean right They might talk with a little bit of a lisp they they their posture is very feminine, they're highly in touch with their emotions they might cry all the time they they just act more like a what we would think a girl would act like and I want you to know that there's absolutely nothing wrong with being an effeminate man, and I hate. How we have destroyed effeminate men in the church. And we've done it culturally. We've used cultural labels. So our culture uh, used to be, and this has changed, and we'll get to that, but it used to be we defined men and women according to the most obvious stereotypes. And we do this like, so go to the checkout place at the grocery store and look at the magazines. And what are guy magazines? Guy magazines are guns, muscles, and cars, right? Guns, muscles, and cars. And guess what we have um, on the cover of every single one of those to sell it to the men is the woman stereotype. So we want uh, tall, busty, and blonde, right? Maybe brunette. I prefer brunettes. But they're going to be in a bikini to sell the gun, to sell the muscles, and to sell the muscle car. So uh, girls, they have the stereotypes for them too. All the girl magazines, uh, they used to, and is changing, They used to be like, girls, how to get the guy, how to, uh, the latest diet, how to get ready for summer, get your bikini body, and all the girls are airbrushed and they look a certain way. So for a long time, culturally, we had defined men and women in very basic uh, ways that are more to do with personality than with gender. Because guess what? You can be a guy and not care about muscle cars. I don't care about muscle cars. When I was going to high school, uh, there were, I remember it very clearly, my freshman year, the guys all sat around with an auto trader magazine talking about the exhaust on a Mustang. I don't, I don't like Mustangs and I don't know anything about exhaust. If my car breaks, I I open up the hood and I look for an on-off switch. This is why I want an electric car because when something goes wrong with my computer, I unplug it and I plug it back in and it always works. I can fix that on a car. I can unplug my car and plug it back in. I can do that. But I didn't fit in to this very basic manly stereotype. You know what I was reading? <laughs> I was reading uh, a book by Jim Morrison that was poetry, uh, American Prayer. I was memorizing poems. I still I have a dozen or so poems memorized by heart because I was more interested in poetry. And so we have used to define men according to stereotypes. You got to like football. uh, You got to, you know, all this stuff. And if you were in touch with your feelings, my, my wife often jokes that I am the woman in the relationship because I'm in touch with my feelings, but I'm not an effeminate man. I can be in touch with my feelings and like UFC at the same time. I can ride a Harley. I was riding a motorcycle all weekend long. I'm covered in tattoos. I've been in street fights, right? My nose has been broken, and I didn't cry when it happened. But I can also hear a sonnet. I can see a sunrise, and it moves me so deeply that my eyes well up. And that is a manly trait. What we did in the culture entered into the church, and we defined men as strong men got to be strong, got to be a warrior for God. Pick up your sword and be a David, right? Kill Goliath. And we define manhood that way within the church. This is where culture infiltrated the church. Yes, David killed Goliath, but dude wrote a lot of poetry and he played a harp. There is no more effeminate instrument than a tiny little harp. And so that's all cultural. That's not biblical. That is not how the Bible defines men. And now we've transitioned. Now we said that if you are, you know, five years ago, if you are an effeminate man, you're gay. Don't we say this? If we see a little boy playing with dolls, oh, he's, he might be gay. He might be transgender, right? He, we, should, we should support this. If he wants to wear a dress, let him wear a dress, because that might that might mean his sexuality is uh going to be expressed differently. Or it could be just sometimes a kid wants to play with a Barbie. If my son wanted to play with a Barbie, so what? So I'm not I'm not going to go, oh my gosh, now you're effeminate because sometimes if a little boy is going to be sensitive, I wanna I wanna encourage that because I don't for the sake of his future wife, I want my sons to some degree be sensitive. I want them to be sensitive to a woman's needs. I want them to be able to be good listeners. I want them to be in tune with their own emotions. We have a huge generation of older guys who they could talk business talk all day long, but you ask them how they feel and they cannot communicate those words. Let me tell you what, if you can't communicate how you feel, that is going to damage your marriage relationship because your wife needs to know how you feel sometimes. They need to know You need to be able to communicate emotions. Emotions are not a feminine thing. So now we're in this ambiguity of what men and women are. And this is just following the logical progression of what liberalism is. It's just following, we can't define anything because feelings matter more than truth. And the guy who was cutting my hair, his feelings mattered more than the facts about who Jesus is, like, you know, oh, Jesus is a Gnostic and special energy and, um, you know, I see ghosts and all this is what's really spiritual. Like, that's all feelings. And there's, there's no truth behind it, but truth doesn't matter. It's just what you feel is real, then you can define whatever you want. And so this has now flowed over into just the most basic, obvious things. Are you a guy or are you a girl? Now we don't know. Now we've become so ambiguous about that that nobody knows what a guy or girl is anymore. But I want you to notice something. If a guy transitions to a girl, he suddenly wears dress, uh, lipstick, and a makeup and talks in a more feminine voice. Why? Because we know what a girl looks like. And they go right towards the stereotype of a girl. So even though they say gender is a social construct, when they transition, they go right into this social construct. It is hypocritical and, I don't know, it's annoying to watch. But one of the things I think we've done a disservice in the church is we haven't celebrated the femininity of men. We need guys to sing in the choir. And we need guys who can sing soprano, right? Like... There's nothing wrong with that. And if we don't let feminine men know that, A, those traits aren't necessarily feminine. It's not, as I I say, I don't know what other word to use to communicate this, but to say you're an effeminate man if you're in touch with your feelings, uh, it gets the point across, but I just don't like using that term effeminate because it is not a female-only trait to be in touch with your emotions. It is a strong, godly trait to be in touch with your emotions, to, to weep or want to play with kids, you know, and be good with your little children. A lot of guys are like, oh, I don't do babies. I don't know. It's a good trait. Some men have it. Some men don't. I'm much better with a four-year-old than I am a newborn. But those who are great with little kids, that is not a feminine trait. It doesn't make you less of a man. We need guys to work in the nursery, not just, hey, I'll be security and hang out by the back door, right? That, that we need both. And so how does the Bible, since we talked at the very beginning, when it comes to spirituality, how does the Bible define it? How does the Bible define gender? In the most basic, minimalistic terms possible. When you read Genesis, look at Adam and Eve. What what traits does it say about Adam. This is to say, and Adam was made strong so he could do all the heavy lifting, and Eve was tiny because so, she was going to be cooking all the time. It doesn't say any of that. Both of them are commanded to subdue the earth, to be gardeners, to work the field. Adam didn't work it by himself. I know girls who sometimes will go out there and they'll work harder than the guys. You ever met a lady who grew up on the farm? Those are some strong women. They can go out there and pick up a bale of hay and toss it in the back of the truck along with some guys. sometimes better. And so we don't see all these divides, these labels put on Adam and Eve. There's only two places that I can really think of um, that define what it is to be a man. One is Micah 6.8 and the other, uh, I'm trying to remember, it's 1 Corinthians 16:13, I think. First uh, Corinthians 16:13. Okay, let me remember, uh, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. right? Let all that you do be done in love. And so there's one that says men that we should stand firm in the faith, we should act like men and then we should be strong. Now, this is not talking about physical strength. It's about strong in our faith. You can be an effeminate man and like, meet all those qualifications. None of those qualifications play into gender stereotypes. None of them do. And then the, my, my favorite one that defines men is Micah 6 eight: Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, for this is the whole purpose of man. So it says, you want to know what it's like to be a man? Love justice, Right. This is guys grow up. They want to be cops. They want to be firemen. They, they wrestle because we want to subdue the enemy. They're superheroes. We should love justice. And it is a manly trait to love justice. But what comes ex- like immediately after that? Love justice, but also love mercy. Be sensitive. Be kind. Be empathetic. Look at your own sin and then see your sin in other people and be patient, slow to speak, quick to listen. God is like this. So we should reflect God in this. God is so full of mercy. What do we want to do? We want to be justice warriors. We're all looking for our Goliath, and we're going to go out there and defeat people, right? We're going to slay the enemy. And the last thing it says is walk humbly with your God. And I would argue that this is the measure of a man, because you can love justice. You can be strong when it comes to justice. You can be strong when it comes to mercy. But if you're not loving God, then you don't really understand what justice and mercy look like. So, what makes a man? What does a man look like according to Scripture? A man is somebody who is born with the genitalia of a man who worships and obeys God. Period. End of sentence. Now, in that is an incredible amount of freedom. That means you can be an effeminate guy, you can be sensitive, you can play the harp all day long, you could dress like a sissy schoolboy and other guys make fun of you right like look at this guy wearing his bow tie and his high water pants and and I know we joke about it but that guy could be an incredible he could be more of a man of God than you because man he is obedient when God calls him and the church has been silent as the world has tried to steal effeminate men for themselves by saying if you have these attributes, if you like classical music more than heavy metal, if you don't care about cars but you care about your cuticles, right, then you're gay. Then you're gay. And they've cre- like created this category and tried to shove you into it. Look, people, that's a prison. That's a predetermined identity that they're just trying to sell you in the hopes of making you more free. But it doesn't make you more free, All of a sudden, you have to change the way you dress, change the way you talk. You're told what movies you should like. You're told what celebrities are cool. If you don't like Celine Dion, you can't be in the club, right? Like, so, I mean, I'm joking, but there's some truth to this. And so we've got to rescue feminine men away from culture because culture has lied to them. And culture can't define anything. It can't. Everything is ambiguous in culture. And we're seeing what happens when we allow ambiguity to rule. When emotion becomes truth, the whole world goes into chaos and can't define anything anymore. And the very act of defining things makes you an enemy of the world. Well, let's define a few things. Men are men, women are women. Men are men, women are women. Jesus is God and there is no way to the father except through him. This is a very, very narrow minded view. When Jesus was asked about divorce, how do you feel about divorce? He didn't answer what divorce was and go and all this stuff. He just says, hey, don't you know what scripture says? A man will leave his family and he'll marry a woman and they'll become one flesh. He says, this, this is what I have wanted. This is how I have defined it. Anything outside of that, it's not, a, it's not healthy and it's not what I've desired. So scripture has defined it. Jesus has defined it. Look, I know there's going to be all sorts of struggles and battles to get back to how God has defined it. But what God has defined is so much more beautiful and freeing than these false prisons that the world has created. So if you know a feminine man at your church, if you are one, if you don't necessarily fit in with the other guys, you would rather sit down with the women I was at a motorcycle shop the other day and I forget what was it we were talking about, but all the other guys are talking about motorcycle stuff and I'm hanging out with their wives and we're talking about our feelings. And guess what? I know more about my feelings than I do about a Harley Davidson exhaust system. I'm going to ride a bike all day long, but I don't know how they work. And I just laughed. But you know what? That's a manly thing to do. That's a manly thing to do, and I'm thankful that I have that. And I can recognize that in other people. I might not dress effeminately, I, I you know, but I, shoot, I got journals and journals of writing down my feelings. It's therapeutic. It's it's helpful for me. My wife sometimes wish I didn't talk about my feelings so much, but that's because, she's a girl who doesn't talk about her feelings. And that's okay because not every girl has to be super in touch with her feelings. We don't have to fall into these stereotypes. Those stereotypes are created by the world, not by God. So we'll talk about apologetics in the coming weeks. Thank you guys for listening. And if you have questions on any of this stuff or you have feedback, hey, email me at org. At A-W-E-S-T-A-R.org. Caleb at Allstar. Email me your questions, your thoughts. Uh, I'd love to, um, maybe one of these days we'll do a live chat with this and I can try to interact with you guys a little bit more, but I don't know if I can read and talk at the same time. I barely look at my notes when I do a sermon. My brain only does one thing at a time. so um, We'll be back soon. Thank you guys for listening. Don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button or however you do that stuff. But what helps me more than anything is leave a good review on iTunes. Leave a five-star review. Tell them that I am the uh, greatest intellectual thinker of our time and that um, you would love to support us. So also, I mean, if you want, you can go to uh, CalebMore.tv. Is that it? Yeah, I forget my own website, CalebMore.tv. And if you want to donate to help support stuff like this, I got a little bit more equipment I would like to buy, but all that costs money. But uh, you're more than welcome to uh, click the donate button uh, on there. So thank you guys. Have a great day.